0: Last Sunday, I brought you a message on the the holiness of God, and and this Sunday and also next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the implications of this. And you remember that we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, and and Isaiah had this vision of God and and this vision of God on his throne and that that God is holy, and the angels were crying, holy, holy, holy. Holy. And we talked about how holiness is God's defining characteristic, that all that God is is, is holy, and that holiness, what it literally means in its most literal sense is, is to separate or, or separate, that God is not like anything else, he's like, not like anyone else, that God truly is uniquely and totally and completely holy. Holy. And that's why the angels, they don't just sing that God is holy, but they sing that He is holy, holy, holy. And we looked at some of the implications of that when Isaiah saw that. Do you remember Isaiah's response? What did he cry out when he he encountered the holiness of God? Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. And 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 him, Isaiah, as as a fallen, sinful human being, as we are all fallen and sinful and human beings, when we encounter the the blazing radiance of God's holiness, it's an undoing experience. It's a a woe-is-me experience. And likewise, for us, too, when we we see God in, in His perfection and we see His law that is perfect and we see how we have fallen so short, we cry out just like Isaiah, woe is me. But then we saw God's response. Remember Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinful man. I'm a, I'm a sinful pe- a part of a sinful people. And my eyes have seen the king of glory. But then God instructed one of the angels and he, 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 he took from the altar a, a coal and he came and he purified Isaiah. That there was a sacrifice that was made on the altar to atone for Isaiah's sins and then it was applied to him. And so likewise, what God does for us as we call out to him, as we look to his sacrifice that he has made for us, his son Jesus, that he applies that sacrifice to us and cleanses us of our sin as well so that we are forgiven, so that we are cleansed, so that we are restored, so that we are renewed, and so that we can be in a right relationship with God. And so I want to look further at some of the implications of, of the holiness of God. I'm going to look at this a little bit deeper today. And I want to start by just saying, asking the question, now what? So we've looked to Christ, we've 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 received of his sacrifice. How many of you that describes you today? You're you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus. You, You look to him, you're not resting on your own righteousness or your own good works, which are filthy rags, but in his work and his work alone. Now what? We're still here. God didn't just zap us off to heaven as soon as we got saved. He left us here so that, that God doesn't do anything on accident. So if we're here as God's people, that we must have some sort of purpose. There must be something He wants us to do, people He wants us to be. So, so the, the, the obstacle that, that existed between us and God's sin has been removed we've been reconciled, we've been brought into fellowship with God, now what do I do? What do I do with my life? What is it that God wants me to do? It's not simply, okay, I got my ticket punched for heaven and now I'm good to go. I just go and just live out my life till I die or Jesus comes and and that's it. No, that God actually has a purpose for his people. Amen. I think a lot of people struggle with this because they view salvation as the destination. They view getting saved as as sort of the the culmination, the climax of of their faith and their walk with God. But, But truly, I would submit to you that salvation is not the destination, but it's the starting point of our life. It's not that we have arrived once we've been saved, it's no, that we've actually finally begun to live the life that God created us for. It's not the finish line that we're running towards. In fact, justification, salvation is that starting point of our our whole purpose that God created us for. I think a lot of people struggle with this and they say, well, I'm a Christian, so I guess I'll go to church on Sundays. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what Christians do. So I'll go to church, right? That's a good thing. Christians do that. I'll try to be a good person because, I don't know, I think that's right, right? I should be good. I think people struggle with this. They don't understand what it is that God has truly called us to as his people. And so this is what I want to look at today. I want to help us answer this question. What do we do with our lives now that we're Christians? Well, what is the purpose for which God created us? And and what does it look like for us to live as God's people And so we're going to turn to Exodus for this, the book of Exodus. This is where these these stories of what God was doing through the children of Israel that the Bible tells us foreshadows who God created us to be help us understand in, in sort of a pictorial way what it means to live in the kingdom of God today. So the book of Exodus, and I think I told you to go to chapter 19. Let me just lay a little bit of groundwork so you understand where we are before we just parachute into Exodus 19. The beginning of the world, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's, he, he's the king of the universe. He, he, everything was created by him and for him. But humanity, who was created in the image of God, sinned against God, rebelled against God, chose not to live under God's authority, but to try to exercise their own autonomy apart from God, which is ridiculous. How could we ever live separated from the one who literally gives us life? How could we ever live autonomous lives apart from the one whose very breath is the spirit inside of us? whose very life animates us. Nevertheless, that's what humanity has tried to do since the garden. That's known as the fall. And and when Adam and Eve fell from their position that God had placed them in to have dominion over the world, sin entered the world and God made a promise. God made a promise that he would fix what we had broken. That he would send a redeemer who would come and restore the fellowship, restore the brokenness that we have through sin. Of course, that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament tells us the story of God fulfilling that promise. How did we go from Adam and Eve to Jesus Christ on the cross? How did we get there? There's about 4,000 years of history there, and so the Old Testament walks us through God's faithfulness, how God... Kept his promise. It shows us God's great master plan. And so we see God call a man named Abraham, uh, and through Abraham, he made a promise that the Redeemer would come. So he set apart a certain people, a particular people, the Jewish people, the, the descendants of Abraham, the family of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to them, God made a covenant with them, that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed and that he would deliver them into a land of promise, the land of Canaan. Well, as the book of Exodus opens up, these descendants of Abraham are enslaved. They're not in their own land of promise. They're in a foreign land of Egypt, and they're slaves. And of course, all of this is foreshadowing the, 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 the picture, it's telling for us in pictorial form the realities of being enslaved to sin, being uh, under the evil taskmaster, the devil. And so they are in Egypt, they are enslaved. Egypt, of course, a type of the world. And they begin to call out to God for salvation. We see that in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 2, it tells us the story of the deliverer who is born, a man named Moses. That God is going to raise up a deliverer who will set his people free. But then Moses is exiled into the wilderness. As he grows up, he goes out into the wilderness. He's he's driven away from Egypt. He doesn't deliver his people. Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses from the middle of the burning bush. And he says, I have chosen you to set my people free. I am sending you to Egypt. To deliver my people. I'm going to make good on my promise. I'm going to take them into this land that I had promised them. And so in Exodus chapter four through six, we see Moses, he goes back and he stands before Pharaoh. And what does he tell Pharaoh? Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. How many of you have seen the 10 commandments? How many of you can't see Moses in any other form except Charlton Heston? (laughs) Forever Charlton Heston will be Moses. Let my people go. He confronts Pharaoh with the word of God. Now, Pharaoh, the government, refuses to obey God. And in fact, he starts to make life worse for God's people, the Israelites. He punishes them. And so God, in the ensuing chapters, he sends 10 plagues on the land. The Egyptians were were polytheists. They worshiped many different gods. So they had the God for the harvest, the God for the sun, the God for the Nile, the God of health. They had all of these gods, the God of their cattle. And so you would sacrifice and worship to the harvest God, the cattle God, the Nile God. And then that supposed God would bring blessing on the land. And so what God does is over the next few chapters, as Pharaoh refuses to obey God's word, God demonstrates that he is the one true God as he begins dethroning these other gods through sending these plagues. So he pollutes the Nile River. And though they offer sacrifices to the Nile God, they they cannot undo what God has done. He he destroys their cattle. He destroys their harvest. he, He brings judgment upon the land in retribution to what the Egyptians had done to his people, to the sin they had done. And so finally, Pharaoh decides to let, his, to let them go because of, of the intense plagues that God had brought upon the land. And God decides to, to bring one more plague, one last plague, to break Pharaoh's resolve. And that night, before they left Egypt, before this final plague what did God instruct them to do? God instruct each of His covenant families to slay a lamb and to apply the blood to the doorpost of their home. That any home in the nation of Egypt, any home that had the, the lamb's blood applied, that death would pass over that house. Of course, what is this pointing to? It's, of course it's pointing towards the cross, of course, it's pointing to the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that, that blood, the, lamb of, the blood of that Lamb had to be applied to each home. And so as, as they do that, they, finally, they're, they're set free. Pharaoh lets them go. And so God's people, they, they get out of Egypt and they start their way to the promised land. And Pharaoh changes his mind again. Pharaoh is more indecisive than my wife getting ready to go somewhere. It's like, I'm gonna wear this, now I'm gonna wear that, and how does this look? Now, how does that look? And it's like, wow, you kind of this like reminds me of Pharaoh. You know, I'll wear this, I'll wear that, I'll wear this. Just make a decision already. Well, he decides he's gonna chase them one more time, and he should have just made it, he should have just stuck with his decision, but he doesn't. He goes after them and God leads his people through this great miracle, the miracle of the Red Sea parting. He chases, the Pharaoh chases after God's people, and after God's people make it to the other side, the Red Sea comes in, and and finally and fully, Egypt is dealt with, and God's people are totally set free. What stands before them in Egypt is now a a waterbed, a sea, telling them that there's no way to go back to Egypt. Of course, for us, this is water baptism. As we go through the waters of baptism, we are dead to the world and we are alive to God. There's no going back. That's what water baptism represents, that we died with Christ and we have been raised to new life in Christ. Now, on the way to the promised land, God has to take them by one more place. And this is where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 19. God told Moses, bring them to Mount Sinai. Bring them to the mountain that I appeared to you on in the burning bush. And here we see the story of God's people, the children of Israel, coming to the mountain, Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, on the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... "'On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. "'They encamped in the wilderness there. "'There Israel encamped before the mountain "'while Moses went up to God. "'The Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob "'and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians.' How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words that the Lord God had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I want you to notice some connections here. God says, I delivered you. I set you free from slavery. I, I brought about salvation for you. I have brought you to myself. And again, salvation, we're talking about in terms of now what? Now what? We have been saved. We have been brought free from from the land of of Satan, from the bondage of, of the enemy. We've been brought free out of the world and now we're walking in the light of God. Now what do we do with our lives? What is God's purpose? What is God's Plan, He says, I have delivered you. I have brought you to myself. I have saved you. Not because you were so wonderful, but on account of the substitute of, of the lamb that was slain and the blood that's been applied. And he says, now what I want you to do, you are to be to me a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. That's what God's design and desire is for those that he has saved, that we would be unto him a holy people, a holy nation. And notice here how they will do this. How are they going to be unto him a holy nation? Well, He tells them, verse 5, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me, A treasured possession. How how do they walk in holiness? How are they to be a holy nation? How will they do this? By obeying the commands of God. By obeying his word. Of course, this is called sanctification. This word sanctification means to be set apart. That God who is holy that God who is set apart, we as God's people, he calls us after we are saved, that we too should be sanctified. We too should be set apart unto him. And so on the mountain, God gives them his law. He gives them his word. The next rest of the book of Exodus and Leviticus And even into the book of Deuteronomy is God giving his people his word from the mountain to set them apart so that they can walk in holiness, so that they can follow his law word. And so notice this, this is the key. It is God's law, it is God's word that sets his people apart from the world. Do you see that? It is his word, it is his law that separates us from the world. It it makes that distinction. So so the question, now what? What do we do now that we have been saved and justified and, and God has delivered us from the world and brought us to himself? What do we do? Well, we follow his law. We follow his word. What follows what comes from Salvation from justification. What comes next is sanctification. Walking in holiness. Following and obeying the word of God. Now, what's important for us to see and to know and to embrace is that Jesus and his apostles taught the exact same thing. This isn't just some Old Testament thing for the Israelites way back at the beginning of the Bible. No, this is part of the new covenant reality for us as well. This is what Jesus taught. So if you will, go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm laying a, a, a broad foundation for us today because... A lot of people, they, they, they understand this. They Okay, I'm a Christian now. I need to read the Word. I need to obey the Word of God. But they don't really understand why. And it makes it hard to do when you don't understand why. Don't, isn't that hard to do something when you don't understand why? It's hard for me. It's definitely hard for my kids. I, I want to lay a foundation for you that, that helps you understand uh, Not to, to, to be able to 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 receive the fruit of holiness, which God calls us all to, we can't receive it separated from the root that produces it in our lives. And so I want to lay that foundation of the root for you to produce that fruit in your life today. So Matthew chapter 5, okay, this is Jesus now. Jesus has his followers, a great crowd of people that are following him. We see this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, okay, so there's, there's a great crowd of people that are following Jesus now. Just like there was a great crowd of people, a great nation that was following Moses. So seeing the crowds, Jesus, what does he do? He goes up on a mountain. He goes up to a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then what does Jesus do? Well, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what is that known as? That's called the Sermon on the Mount. And just as God delivered to his people in the Old Testament his law, his word, his commandments, Jesus does the same thing. Jesus takes his followers up to a mountain and he delivers unto them his word, his law, his commandments. And if you look at the very end of Matthew chapter 5, the very last verse, Jesus echoes the exact same thing that God told Moses on the mountain. He tells his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus takes his followers up to a mountain. He delivers to them what? His word? And then he calls his people to do what? To obedience, to walk in holiness, to be holy as God is holy. Now, of course, it's not just Jesus that teaches this. The apostles teach this. I want to read you one passage from, from Peter in his writings. Peter said this, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back to Egypt, he says. Don't go back to the world. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what happened on Mount Sinai is the the commandments of God are given, the Ten Commandments as we, we know them are given for God's people. What happened there was a prototype a foreshadowing of what the Messiah was to inaugurate, what Christ was to to bring about, what he was to establish. So in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is established so that the Messiah can come, but that was foreshadowing the Messiah coming and inaugurating something bigger, something better, the kingdom of God, of which you and I are now a part of, of which you and I are now citizens of this kingdom. But this, this kingdom is not without laws. This kingdom is not without commandments. This kingdom is an anarchy. This kingdom has laws, has commandments, like any other kingdom does, and it is the Word of God. And we are to walk as priests, to live as priests, as holy as unto the Lord, offering up to God spiritual worship and living as His agents in the world separated from the world, not by vicinity, so we don't go off into the mountains somewhere and and, and go live totally separated from the world. No, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Amongst the world, but not living and thinking and acting like the world. Because we are separated unto God. We are called to be holy, holy. Now, none of us can be holy in the same way that God is holy. God is the only one who is holy, holy, holy. He is totally unique in all of his holiness. However, Peter says that we are to be holy in our conduct, in the way that we live our lives. And it is God's word that separates us, that marks us off from the world, that sets us apart as holy unto God. We are to be the people of God, obeying the word of God, being filled with the spirit of God, endued with the power of God. We're not to hide away somewhere. In fact, Jesus says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're we're to be like that city on a hill that, that shines forth its light. We're to be like the lamp that gets put on a lampstand. It's not hidden away, but it's lifted up high. How many of you have have lamps that are just on the floor in your house? How many of you just put light bulbs all over the floor? No, that's ridiculous. It's the same thing. We we elevate the light so that it can shine forth, that it can illuminate. Jesus says we're to be like that. We're to let our lights shine. We're not to cower away and, and have our own little private bless me club and private I obey Jesus in, in over here. No, we're to open the doors. We're, we're to live out our faith in the public square, obedient to God as a part of his kingdom, living out our faith and living as holy people. The Word of God, it cuts. It's that sword of the Spirit. It separates us apart from the world and unto God. So there should be a distinction between God's people and the world in which we live. We shouldn't just blend into the culture. Now... I said I was going to answer some why questions for you. Because I, I want you to, to, to truly embrace this, to truly understand this. And I want to ask the question, why do we obey God? Okay, God has given us his word, but why do we obey it? Now, certainly we could just answer because God said so. And that would be adequate, correct? That, 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 sh- that could be enough. That should be enough. But that's not all that God has given us. In fact, God has given us other motivations for obeying his word. And so let me show those to you. That's in John chapter 14. If you'll go with me to John chapter 14 today. if because God said so isn't motivation enough for you, Jesus himself gives us another motivation. John chapter 14. And Jesus, as any good teacher does, he repeats himself four times in this passage, just so we don't miss it. So John chapter 14, and let's start in verse 15. Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So we obey God's word because it's God's word. Okay, I get it. That's that's a done deal. That's a settled deal. But then Jesus adds this other dimension to it. He says, we also obey his word because because we love him. Because we love him. Because we love him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. Now, he said it four times, so let's go down to verse 21. Verse 21 of John 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, show myself to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. As we walk in holiness, as we obey the word of God, motivated by love, Jesus promises that we will abide with him, that we will live with him, that we will live in his life, that the life of the Father and the Son will be manifest to us, will be revealed to us. The kingdom of God will come in our hearts, our lives, our families, and our communities as we obey the word of God. And notice finally verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, so why do we obey God? Because we love him. Because we love him. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, if you don't love me, you won't. So what can we say of those who don't keep God's commandments? They don't love God. They don't love God. If you don't keep God's commandments, if you don't obey his word, what it reveals is a lack of love on your part for God. According to Jesus. If I love him, I want to obey him. I cannot tell you how many times I've said that to my kids. Do you love me? Do you love me? Just, then just obey me if you love me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what, what it shows is if we are disobeying God's commandments in, in some area of our life, it's because of a lack of love that we have for God on our part. But now I want to answer another question. Why do we love God? Why do we love God? So let's go to 1 John now. We're looking at a lot of scripture. I'm laying a a big foundation for you today. 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Why do we love God? 1 John's all the way at the back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. If you get to the Concordance, you went way too far. If you get to your lap, well... 1 John chapter 4, let's look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. God's love has been revealed among us in this way that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation. That's atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God has manifested his love. He has shown his love in this way. In providing a way of salvation by sending his very own son. And then look at verse 19. Verse 19. We love... Because he first loved us. So why do we love God? Because he loves us. How do we know he loves us? We look at the cross. We we look at the one who left heaven to come and die. To rise again, to bring us into his family. We look to the cross. The cross shows us the love of God. And we respond to God's love for us by what? By loving him. We love because he first loved us. So God calls us out from the world. He provides a way of salvation because of his great love for us. And then he calls us as his people to be holy, separated unto him. He gives us his word, and we are holy. We walk in holiness as we obey his word. And we obey his word because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Therefore, the foundation for me walking in holiness is not my love for God, but it is God's love for me. That is the foundation of all of this. That's what's at rock bottom. If you're struggling to obey God's commandments, you need to go deeper. You need to go deeper than your love for God. You need to go deeper down to the bedrock of God's love for you. Because my love for God can be hot one day and it can grow cold the next. But God's love for me does not change. We read it this morning, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is the foundation of our walk, that is the foundation of our life. Indeed, I would submit to you that that is the foundation of the whole universe. It truly is the love of God So to grow in holiness, I must grow in the knowledge of God's love. I must grow in the knowledge of God's love because as I see how much he loves me, it produces a love in my heart for him. And as I love him more and more, I want to walk in fellowship with him. I want to obey his word. And when I do that, I become that light in my community. I become that city on a hill. I I establish the kingdom of God when I live under his word. So if you remember this morning, I told you to go to Luke chapter 15. I know that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But I also told you that was the last passage that we would look at today. So Luke chapter 15. This is a story about the love of the the Father, the love of God. Because I, I want us to grow in holiness. I want us to grow in obedience to the word of God. Let's take a moment to just examine the love of God. Luke chapter 15 begins in an interesting way. Verse 1 says that now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And some things change in the world and some things don't. Um, What hasn't changed is that tax collectors are just as despised today as they were in Jesus' day. If you work for the IRS, I want you to know that God loves you. (laughs) We might struggle with it, but God loves you. I want you to know that. God loves you. The love of God is never-ending. But anyway, tax collectors in Jesus, they were especially despised because they had been hired by the Romans, but they were Jewish people. So they they were Jewish people who had betrayed their own nation to get rich. And they could they were they collected their profits by overtaxing the people. So whatever they brought in above what Rome required, they were able to keep for themselves. So not only were they working for the enemy, but they were oppressing their own people. So they were equally despised uh, just so but nevertheless it says that their and sinners are drawing near t- to Christ And the religious people, the, the, the establishment of Jesus' day, it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And to that I would say, yes, he does. If Jesus didn't receive sinners, Jesus wouldn't receive anybody. And so Jesus tells three stories. To, to illustrate why he receives sinners to himself. We're going to look at the third story, and that's in verse 11. Verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said, and this is a story that illustrates the point. There was a man who had two sons. How many sons did he have? Two sons. And the younger of them said to his father... Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. Now, this is an, this is an intensely offensive statement. Because the way it worked in that day is really the, the same way it works in our day. When a, a, a patriarch would pass away, when a, a father would pass away, he would divide his property, his inheritance, for his sons. And he would div- divvy it out to his descendants. But this younger son of his comes to him and says, I don't want to wait until you're dead. I want what's coming to me now. I don't want to live in fellowship with you. I don't want to live in relationship with you. I don't love you. I just want your stuff. And essentially, he's telling his father, You are dead to me. So let's just give me the stuff I'll get. And I will just be out of your life. I'll be out of your hair forever. What's astonishing is that the father complies with this rebellious son. And and to do this would have been at a great cost to himself, as no doubt a, a wealthy man would have a very diverse portfolio. He would have land, he would have cattle, he would have servants. And and he would have had to essentially get rid of a whole third, because the elder brother would have gotten, the oldest son would have got a double portion. He would have, have to get rid of a whole third of his estate while he's alive. So he's having to sell property. He's having to sell cattle, reduce all of his investments down into hard money so that he can give it to his rebellious son. And he does it. And then it says, not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He didn't even want to be part of the same nationality as his father. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he's just having a good time. He's just living it up. He's just partying and just having a great time. Drugs prostitutes. But then it says, verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. Listen, the Bible even says that sin might produce joy in, in a short term, but in the long term, it never pays. In the long term, it always brings ruin. It always brings lasting trial and leaves a trail of death and destruction. And so he spends everything he has and now there's a severe famine. That's a a great depression. There's no food. There's no work. There's no money. And so he begins to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and one of the that that citizen gave him this job. He sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty bad job to me. But for a Jewish person who couldn't even be around pigs, pork, you know, they have a kosher diet. Like, like they like this would have made the Pharisees who are hearing this story, they would like throw up in their mouth when they heard this. This rebellious son rebels against his father. He wastes his whole multi-generational heritage legacy and inheritance, blows it all on wild living, and he's come to the bottom, the very bottom of the bottom. He's feeding pigs. And it tells us it's even worse than that in verse 16. He was living with the pigs. He lived in the pig pen. He was longing even to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That the sin, this rebellion in his life has turned him into an animal. And there he is at the trough feeding the pigs, and he's like, hmm, that looks pretty good. And he has this moment in verse 17, and it says, He came to himself. He said, What am I thinking? What am I doing? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. What will he go and say to his father? Woe is me. I am undone. He, he is standing at the pig trough, looking at what the pigs are eating, desiring the same thing. He finally comes to himself and he says, wait, wait a second. What am I doing? What have I become? I'll go to my father. I'll tell him I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, maybe if I go back on my hands and my knees, maybe if I go back groveling before him, he will let me just be one of his servants in his house. And so in verse 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. And it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So here comes back his son, his son who had left with property, his son who had left with material possessions, his son who had gone out wealthy, with everything that that money could buy, he comes back with nothing, broken, a shrivel of a man, beaten, tattered, caked in the mud of the pigs. And his father sees him, sees him from a long way off, and it says he felt compassion. He didn't look at his son and say, what did you do with our money? What did you do with the inheritance? Why have you wasted it? Why have you squandered it? You no good, worthless son of mine. He didn't say that. But he says when he sees his son, he is filled with what? Compassion. His heart breaks for his son. And he runs to his son and embraces him. He embraces this filthy son. Now, of course, this is a picture of all of us of all of us and the wreck of our lives or the wreck of our lives that we've made because of sin, that we've all rebelled against God, we've all gone our own way, we've all taken the life that God gave us and not used it for his glory. But what does God do when we come back to him? What does God do after we're broken, after we've burdened, after we've made a mess of everything? When we come to God, does he say, what did you do? Why did you do this? No, God runs and what does he do? He embraces us with his love. He feels compassion for us. He he scoops his son into his arms. His son that's caked in mud, his son that's ruined his life. And he begins to kiss him, to kiss his son And his son, not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say, he tries to get his speech out, the speech that he had rehearsed. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. The dad totally ignores him. He says to one of his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. He says to bring not just any robe, not just to go put him in the servants' quarters, not send him out into the field to work. Maybe you can repay me because of the way you've ruined and wasted everything. No he says, bring the best robe. Now, who would have had the best robe? The dad would have had the best robe. Bring him my robe. My son, this son of mine is not going to be clothed in the clothes of his sin, but he is going to be clothed in my righteousness. He is not going to be clothed in these filthy rags, but in my righteousness. And listen, this is what God does for everyone who turns in faith to him, to everyone who repents of sin. He doesn't say you have to work to earn my love. No, he loves us and he showers his righteousness upon us so that we are no longer clothed in sin, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then he says, put the ring on his hand. That, that ring would have been the signet ring, which means I, that all of the authority that I have, I am vesting back in my son. That's the name of Jesus for us. That, that's what that is. It represents the authority of heaven. He gives us the name of Jesus so that we can pray in his name and see his will accomplished on earth and put shoes on his feet. This is so Amazing. It's the love of God. It's the love of the Father. Why do we love God? We love God because he, he loves us. And why do we obey God? We obey God because we love him. Now remember, there were two sons. There were two sons. In verse 23, 25, it tells us what happens to the other son. Now his older son was in the field. He was out working. He came home and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and said, what what is all of this about? What's this party about? The servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Did the brother say, wonderful. I can't wait to see my brother. What a wonderful day this is. No. Verse 28, but he was angry, and refused to go in. So what does the father do? Well, the father comes out to his angry son. The father pursued the son who was afar off, and the father pursues the angry son who will not come in. The father comes out and he entreats him. He says, come inside, come and celebrate with us. But he answered his father, look, look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours comes, not my brother, but when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him." the father says, son, you are with me always, and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Now remember, who is Jesus telling this story to? Jesus is telling this story to the scribes and the Pharisees that were upset because Jesus was spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus is telling them, look, they have made a mess of their lives. There's no doubt about it. They need the Father's love. There's no doubt about it. They need restoration. They need reconciliation. There's no denying that. But then he tells the Pharisees, look, you too have made a mess of things. You too, though you have obeyed the commandments, you too do not have love for your Father. This isn't the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of two prodigal sons. Neither one of them loved their father. One of them just wanted what his father could give, wasted his life. The other one thought he could earn what he wanted from the father by just obeying him. What this shows us is that you can obey the father. You can obey the commandments and not love God. But you can't love God and not obey him. There can be obedience without love, but there cannot be any love that does not produce obedience. And the father pursues, the father chases after both sons. So in conclusion today, if you find... That holiness and surrender and sacrifice and sanctification, keeping the word of God, keeping the commands of God. If you find yourself recoiling and chafing under that, I would submit to you that what you lack is a comprehension of God's love for you. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you will understand my commandments. There may be times that we don't understand why God has said what he has said. Nevertheless, we love him. And if we are not keeping his commandments, it's not a problem of willpower, but it's a problem of love power. The power of the Christian faith, the Christian life, the power comes from love. Not keeping God's word stems from us not loving God the way that we should. And if you're struggling to obey Christ's commandments, what we ought to do is think about his love for us and the manifestation of that love in the cross of Christ. God shows his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We keep his commandments not to earn his love We keep his commandments because he has loved us and we love him and we are in fellowship together. We love him because he first loved us. Again, you may be struggling to understand why this and why that commandment. I don't understand. Why does God allow one thing and forbid another? Listen, I I can't explain all of that to you, but I can tell you one thing for sure. God loves you. And God only wants the best for you. And God paid the greatest price to redeem me and you. Wretched sinners that we are. The battle against sin in our lives, the battle to keep God's commandments, the battle for holiness and sanctification, it is a real battle and it is an intense battle. But again, it's not waged through willpower, it's waged through love power. And I would encourage you not to focus on your insufficiency in your love for God, but to focus on God's sufficiency in his love for you.